John chapter 9. We're continuing our series in the book of John where we uh, have been for quite some time and uh, we took a little break uh, for Easter season and we're going to be back now and just going through the gospel of John. And by way of reminder, uh, John tells us at the end of his book, and by the way, make sure your phones are turned off, silent, uh, that would be helpful uh, to folks around you. And, but John tells us in John 20, 31, which is towards the end of the book, he tells us the purpose for which he is writing what we call the Gospel of John. And he gives kind of the purpose. He gives the, 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 his motivation. And he says that these things are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John is writing what we refer to as the gospel according to John. He is writing this so that you would know who Jesus is and that by knowing who Jesus is that you would put your faith or trust in him. Notice you can't have the belief, the faith, and the trust in him without the person. The person and the message are linked together. Christianity is not about buildings or creeds or any, but it's about a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so John is introducing us uh, or introducing his audience, which is pretty much a non Jewish audience primarily. That's the reason he has a lot of uh, references there. And John, as I mentioned, I think the first time we uh, began this series, a little review is helpful is that John is different than what we refer to as the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of at an oversimplification, they kind of, you would say, kind of that's a, a video timeline of the life of Jesus. If you were going to put the life of Jesus and make a movie out of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow kind of a sequential event. John is more of a picture album. It is selective events because John, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, who's the author, has an intent. He has a purpose of what he's wanting to do here. He's using all the certain pieces in the life of Jesus to fulfill or drive home what he tells us in John 20, 31, that you would come to faith in knowing that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the Jewish word Messiah, that you would know that Jesus is the sent one from God, the Son of God, and that by believing, by trusting, you may have life in His name. So knowing Jesus and belief in Jesus are linked together. Now we know that through chapters 1 through 8, and all through Jesus' teaching, but especially in John, John uses, or Jesus uses, a lot of symbols and metaphors to teach. Uh, in Matthew, he uses parables. Parables are earthly stories that have a spiritual meaning, okay? And so in John, there's various aspects that Jesus uses metaphors or symbols. For example, in John chapter 3, you remember when he told Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. Now, Nicodemus was thinking, that's impossible, like a normal person would but Jesus had a spiritual purpose, meaning you need to be uh, born from above. He's talking about a spiritual new birth, okay? Uh, the woman at the well, uh, she's there gathering 
uh, uh, water, real water at this well, the Samaritan woman. And Jesus talks about drinking from me the living water. He uses again a, a, a real situation, a real, meta, a real symbol to point to a spiritual reality. Uh, Jesus in John 6, we looked at that when he fed the multitude, fed the crowd, fed them bread uh, and, and, and some fish and multiplied it miraculously. And he talked about being the bread of life. They were excited to have real bread, but he said that bread will eventually wear off and leave you dissatisfied, but I am the bread of life. I will give you the sustaining satisfaction that will last for all eternity. So you see what he does here. So as we come to chapter 9, we see another event that Jesus captures to bring about spiritual truth. And in John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. He saw a man that was blind from birth, hadn't seen since he had been born. Now in John, John does something again. Remember, John has an intent of what he's wanting to do. He's very deliberate in the way he structures his letter here. So as you read it, these are little things to keep in mind. And remember, we talked about that in the Gospel of John, John highlights seven miracles of Jesus. Now it doesn't mean that Jesus only did seven miracles, but John uses the seven. Seven is the number of perfection and, uh, in, the, in the numerology. And so John uses these seven miracles, all these little pieces. Again, he's driving at demonstrating that Jesus is the true sent one. And so this morning in John 9, I want us to look at this chapter. And we're going to walk through it fairly quickly uh, this morning and cover the entire chapter and highlight certain things. And in your bulletin, you were given uh, when you came in lots of information in there, and you should have a little blue sheet in there that is a listener's guide, and you can follow along and get your money's worth out of the message today. But that'll help you be an engaged listener, okay? You've made the investment to come here. You, you took a shower and got, I hope you did, but anyway, you, you look all pretty and, and got dressed, so why not take advantage? People say, you know, I just wish I could study the Bible. I just wish I could know the Bible. Well, guess what? This counts, all right, this is what we're doing, all right? So take advantage of it. Use the guide there as a help and, uh, and learn some things. But more importantly, is isn't just transferring data or information, but it really is saying, God, I, I'm setting myself for you to show me, God, your truth and apply it by your Holy Spirit into my life. So you're just making some intentionality as a listener. Uh, so this morning, notice with me six observations in this passage of John chapter 9, notice first of all the condition of blindness. The condition of blindness. I read chapter 9 verse 1. The Bible says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind since birth. From birth. He was, he was blind from birth. Hasn't seen a day in his life. I remember when I was in college... I did uh, some work at a, a Christian radio station uh, back when, you know, they had real people doing that kind of thing and put real records to you, those of you younger, those are these big plastic things like oversized CDs, you know, that we used and all that. And I remember going and doing an interview at this radio station uh, while I was in school and the main announcer 
was, and I don't even know, I, I think he's in heaven now, but his name was Bill Dees. And when I walked in, it was just him and I think maybe a secretary, and I walked in the studio to talk to him. And I was immediately struck because I talked to him on the phone, I listened to him on the radio, but I was immediately struck that he was blind. You could just tell that he was blind. He was blind. Never had seen anything in his entire life. And yet, if you listen to him, I mean, this wasn't computer. This was, I mean, he, he was, uh, you know, what we call disc jockey. Some of you might know what that uh, term means. But, I mean, he had this little, back in the day, now this is 86, and he had this little watch that would, you know, he could punch it. You know, this is before smartphones and all that kind of thing. And he had this little watch, 332. You know, he could hit that. And all, like the records, he actually put records in the cart machine or they looked like eight tracks. And uh, I remember uh, all of those records, because later on I would go in and help him do this. He had a little, looked like some kind of typewriter, but it typed Braille. And we would, we would, I would help him, and he would put, we would type the Braille labels, put them on the side of the record. So as he was on the radio, this is Bill D's on AM 14, whatever it is, you know, and he could just reach behind, feel the Braille of the record, and as he's talking, put it on the term. You would never know that he was blind. Well, this man was blind, and it says that he was blind, and it was uh, when Jesus passed him by. And in verse 2, it says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They were just parroting kind of the myth of a false understanding that if a person was suffering, if a person was poor, if there was some tragedy in the individual's life, it came about because there must have been sin in that person's life or maybe in their family, there might have been some uh, curse in their family, and that's the reason they have this disease, or they're in this condition, okay? Uh, and Jesus, uh, Jesus kind of knocks that out and, and doesn't even qualify that, and says in verse 3, neither, neither, you're wrong, neither this man nor his parents sin. Now, he's not talking about they were sinless, and he's not denying the fact that sin... And we've been covering this in Genesis, uh, in our study in Genesis with chapter 3, what is referred to as the fall of mankind, when mankind represented in, our, in Adam and Eve that sin entered into the world. It is not in any way denying that because of sin, there is sickness, there is disease, there is suffering, there is death. It's not denying that. So in one sense, all of that has been the effect of sin, but what he's saying is that this particular issue can't be because his parents didn't, did do this or didn't do that in making it some type of like generational curse type of thing, which uh, some people have taught. But he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. And so Jesus gives a little sense of the motive of why was Jesus walking by at that moment, at that time, at that place, at that location, you realize Jesus never does anything haphazard. Aren't you glad for that? You realize that in our life, your life, Jesus is always working intentionally. 
There's never an accidental moment. We say, well, you know, this happened by accident. Everything is on time. Everything has a providential purpose. And so Jesus explains that it is that this man, uh, that in this moment, this time, that it's in order for the works of God should be revealed in him and consequently the works of God be witnessed by those that this man is going to affect by what's getting ready to take place. And so the part of that motive, Jesus says in verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me. In other words, I'm about my father's business. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming. And in John, you see this contrast between night and day, light and dark. And we're going to see that in a minute. The night is coming when no one can work. In other words, the night is coming when my redemptive purpose, the day is coming in which the opportunity is going to be no more. But right now, Jesus is saying, I must be about my Father's work. Verse 5, and he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So we see the condition of the man, the setting there. Notice secondly, as we walk through this, is the compassion of Jesus. Secondly, is the compassion of Jesus. Now this is, I mean, what we're, in verse 6 is fascinating because it has perplexed everybody who's ever read it. It says in verse 6 that when he, Jesus, had said these things, he spat on the ground, or in the south he spit on the ground, and he made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now, don't get any, any ideas, okay, about, about doing this. And listen, your guess as to why Jesus did this is as good as anybody else. The scholars, whatever. Listen, there are some things we just can't, we're just not going to know. He doesn't explain why he does this. He doesn't give us any later on teaching of why he does this. Some have speculated that, well, it's a symbol of God's creation of man from the dirt or whatever. Okay, you know, that sounds cool. I, I, I can buy into that, but I don't know if that's what it meant. We saw Jesus stooping down in another situation. Remember when the woman who was caught in adultery was brought to him and he stooped down and he started drawing in the, in the dirt there? And we're just what? We want to know, what was he writing? What was he writing? Well, we don't know. We speculate a little bit. And we speculate a little bit here. There's a mystery there. And uh, some have just made it really simple and said maybe because we see uh, what he tells them to do. In verse 7, he tells them after he does this, puts this on his eye, he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. Siloam means scent. It was a large body of water. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. And some just said, look, maybe as a way of motivating this guy, because remember, this man did not know who he was talking to. He didn't know, he didn't know anything except what is getting ready to take place. And they suggested that maybe it was something as simple as Jesus putting some dirt in his eye. You ever had something in your eye? I used to wear contacts. I, I got to where I don't wear them because of the irritation at times. But if you, those of you who wear contacts, you know there's nothing more irritating than when those things get dry, right? 
or you get dirt, or you get something in there, whatever. What do you got to do? You got to get that thing out. You got to flush it out. You got to wash your eyes or whatever. And they suggested something really, really not real super spiritual. It may have just been as a way to motivate this guy to do what Jesus told him to do. Because listen, he had dirt in his eyes. He had mud in his eyes. Even though he couldn't see, his nerves and all that probably were still feeling the dirt and the grittiness. And boy, that motivated him to get to some water and do what? Wash it out. That's real profound, isn't it? Maybe Jesus just just said, I'm going to help you and motivate you, and I'm going to put some dirt in your eye. I'm going to put some mud in your eye. You ever found that sometimes God puts some mud in your situation just to motivate you to press forward, just to get it done? Maybe, Maybe it isn't real spiritual. God just put a little mud in the situation to do what? For you to get off your blessed assurance and go take care of something you need to take care of, right? Now, this isn't really spiritual, and I hope it isn't in any way sacrilege, but I just kind of always wonder, you know, if Jesus, if you talk to him someday, he just said, I just did that to see what people would try to figure that out. I think that'd be pretty funny. Jesus, why did you do that? I don't know. I just wanted people for thousands of years to be trying to figure some deep spiritual meaning of that. I don't know. All right, so sorry if that. But it says, verse 7, he went and washed, and what does it say? He came back. Now, let me ask you this. Could Jesus have instantly healed him? Did he need him to do anything? No. But you know what he did in the process? The man listened to Jesus, and he obeyed Jesus. And there's something in that obeying in that obedience connection there that brought about his healing. And he would testify this, uh, of this reality uh, in verse 11 when he was giving testimony and said, a man called Jesus, he doesn't even really know him in verse 11, and he's, he's giving testimony later in the chapter. He said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. The Pool of Siloam, it's interesting, a lot of scholars thought they knew where it was in Jerusalem, but it was only as recent as 2004 that archaeologists uh, actually found the actual site where this Pool of Siloam was located, this large body of water in, the, uh, in, the, in Jerusalem. And this guy, verse 8, he became a messenger to the works of God. Isn't that what, when God does something and touches your life, if it doesn't make you a messenger to tell other people about, if it doesn't motivate you to say, come and see. Wasn't that the woman at the well? She went into the town and said, come and see a man that told me everything about me. I mean, when you, you know, there's nothing, there's no better billboard. There's no better marketing strategy than a changed life that's been changed by Jesus Christ. You know what? They'll be able, might be able to refute your philosophical reasoning, may refute some of your theological views, but they can't refute the fact of what this man would say is, I was blind and now I see. And that was essentially his testimony. So we see the condition of the man, the compassion of Jesus. Jesus had great compassion. But boy, this caused some controversy. Thirdly, the controversy of the Pharisees, verses 13 through 34. We're not going to read all those, but, but this, boy, this really creates some controversy. Now, you would think 
that something so wonderful is a man who has never seen a day in his life. And apparently he's well known in the community because later they go and get his parents and they know who his parents are. They're members of the synagogue because it was out of fear that they said what they said, and we won't read it all, because they feared of being kicked out of the synagogue. I mean, the Pharisees, if you remember the Pharisees, these are a religious group, we might say denomination today. There were four, and I've said this many times, but some of you are not familiar. You had the Pharisees. They would be kind of the strict, ultra-conservative uh, guardians of the law uh, that uh, we might would call them the fundamentalists, you know, um, and then you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees, we might would say they were a little bit more theologically on the liberal spectrum. Now, together, they composed a group that wasn't necessarily a religious denomination, but they composed the Jewish Supreme Court of the day called the what? The Sanhedrin. Pharisees and Sadducees, they were kind of the ruling body. And then you had some smaller groups like the Essenes. They kind of were the ones that uh, were like uh, a monastery. They went off in the desert to read scripture and just kind of isolate themselves. And then you had the other extreme of the zealots. They believed that they were called and were Jewish uh, radicals to overthrow Rome by violent force. So you had these groups going on there. Uh, James and John were members of, at one time, I think they were members of the zealots, kind of, remember, they had that, they were, they were really had that trigger finger thing on nuking the Samaritans, remember? When the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus, John says, hey, well, why don't we just blow them away? And these are the same two guys that their mama wanted to sit on the right and the left side of Jesus. No, 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 no. I don't want them anywhere near the throne of the right. I mean, but that's their background because they had this radical background. Well, the Pharisees, they believed that they were called of God to be the keepers of the law. And that meant to be in everybody's business and what they did and what they didn't do. And here we see the issue that really caused their ire in verse 13, that they brought this healed blind man, and notice the text says, who formerly was blind to the Pharisees, verse 14, now it was a what? Oh man, if you could just have done this on Sunday night. If you could have just done this on Thursday. But do you not think Jesus knew what day it was? In fact, we see at another time earlier back in John 5 with the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda and Jesus on the Sabbath day tells him to pick up his bed and walk. Guess what? They weren't, the Pharisees were all up in arms over that. This guy was crippled and now he's walking. You know why they were mad? Because he picked up his mat and they considered that working and they had devised this system Instead of it saying that the Sabbath was a day of rest, it should be a day of worship unto the Lord, it was uh, uh, begun in the sense of uh, uh, the symbolism of the seventh day of creation when God rested from his works and later at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law, it became institutionalized for the Jews, the seventh day Sabbath. Sabbath means seventh day of worship. And so the guy in John 5 because he picked up his mat, they said, oh, whoa, 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 that's working. And the fact that Jesus, you know what, they got, they got mad 
Because not only did Jesus heal, because they only considered according to their traditions. This wasn't anything in the Bible. In their traditions, that healings on the Sabbath were only allowed unless it was an emergency. I would think that if you've never seen a day in your life, I don't know, I'm just going to go out on a limb here, that's kind of an emergency, right? But the fact that Jesus spit in the ground and made mud and put it on his eyes, they said that that violated the Sabbath because that was doing some work. That was doing, look, they were messed up. We all agree with that. They were looking for any way, and you see as you were studying through the Gospel of John, we see this tension and this frustration uh, that they're having with Jesus because great crowds are happening, healings and miracles are taking place, and their power, their authority is being threatened. And so we see them now looking for any opportunity to come against Jesus. In fact, verse 16 They get so bent out of shape later in the chapter. They said, therefore, some of the Pharisees said, verse 16, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, they totally missed the miracle. And you know, sometimes as believers, we can do that. God can be doing a miraculous thing in people's life, and we're like, did you see what they were wearing? Did you see how many tattoos they had? Hello? I mean, we, we can really, you know, we're hard on these Pharisees, but you know what? We got, that, we got that Pharisee blood in us sometimes, right? Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath, meaning he doesn't keep it the way that we have defined it. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So, Listen, the old saying is, if your enemy is fighting among themselves and hurting themselves, leave them alone. And they were just, they were at each other. They couldn't even agree on Jesus. Remember Nicodemus in chapter 3, as a high-level Pharisee came to Jesus at night, and he acknowledged that no one could do the works of God that you do unless he is sent from God. So he even acknowledged there was something unique and special. Well, they weren't so much, they, they knew there was something unique, but they were seeing it more in a negative way. And so Jesus challenged the Sabbath. He was not breaking the Sabbath in the sense of dishonoring God, but what he was doing, I think he was deliberately poking them in the eye and provoking a situation to bring to surface, to bring to surface their disconnect between their man-made traditions and the real agenda of God. And I just pray, God, help us break our traditions that those things... There's nothing wrong with traditions. But it's when those traditions become obstacles for the purposes of God that we get get in trouble. So we see the condition of the man, the compassion of Jesus, controversy of the Pharisees. And let me kind of just take a pause here to make to kind of bear down on a point that's maybe a little obvious to most, but let me just kind of bring it out here rather than towards the end. And this is making the spiritual comparison. The fourth thing is the spiritual comparison. The spiritual comparison. This is an actual story, healing, event, 
of a man, a real man, who was born blind. Jesus uses this healing of this man born blind. Jesus uses this real historical account to illustrate a spiritual truth that is really kind of the big picture here. And we need to make sure we don't miss that here. Um, The greater teaching of Jesus has to do with the spiritual blindness of all men, of all women. This man had physical blindness, but there's something I would even argue that's worse than physical blindness, and that is a blindness of the Spirit. There's a blindness of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus, John, says in, uh, uh, in John 9, 5? Jesus says, as long, I, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's how John started out the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, in him was life, John 1, verse 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light, speaking of Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. They did not understand it. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, The reason the world, spiritually speaking, needs the light. Light does what? It reveals something, doesn't it? That's why as long as you keep your shades drawn, you'll never notice how dusty your living room is. And then you open all the windows and let all the light come in, and you're like, oh my goodness. I just dusted in here last week, and it looks like, and dust in here in a year. Well, there's something about light that reveals things, doesn't it? That's the reason those of you who might like to go clubbing, you go in darkness. You, you, know, you flip on the lights and turn on the lights in those places, they'd be scattering like rats on a drowning ship. Nobody wants the light. Because darkness gives the Facade of concealing. And that's the picture that we see even spiritually here. The world is spiritually blind. We've been blinded from birth. Paul helps us a little bit in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6. He says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, notice light and gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, verse 5, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake, For it is God, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So because of darkness, the light of Jesus has come. And those in spiritual darkness think, those who are in spiritual darkness think that they know spiritual truth, but their sin blinds them to the fact that they don't know God because they might be very religious and they do certain things 
But the reality is, the sickest person is the one who has a terminal disease but lives in a disconnect of reality in believing that everything is fine and I'm well and I'm healthy. And so, you know, we, some people may think, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe in Jesus. Listen, that isn't necessarily the case. These Pharisees saw all sorts of miracles. Here's a guy who's living, breathing miracle, and what did it do? It didn't make their hearts softer to Christ. It hardened their heart. Why? Because of their unbelief. Starting point of spiritual sight is to admit that you're blind as a sinner and you need Jesus Christ to bring the light in your life. And Jesus is the only one that can open your Eyes spiritually. The psalmist writes in Psalm 146 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus was spoken of in John 1 4, and him was life, and the life, the life of Jesus was the light of men. And we need that light. We're living the reason the necessity of that spiritual life of Christ is because we ourselves, like this man, we are born in darkness. We are born with a spiritual blindness. And we need the light of Christ. Jesus said that in John 3 about being born again. Jesus said in John 3, 3, what did he say? No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You cannot even see the kingdom of God. He's not talking about in the natural. He's talking about in the spiritual. And without this spiritual regeneration, without this spiritual new birth, without the light of Christ coming and opening our hearts and our minds, we are like what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2.14. You wonder why some people, as though they, 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 they struggle and, and try but unless they are born again, Paul says, but the natural man, that means the person who is not born again, the person who is not regenerated, the person who has not been healed of their spiritual blindness, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he or she know them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, the reason and the necessity of being born again is because what we've studied for the last several weeks in Genesis on Wednesday nights, because of sin. And because sin has infected the bloodstream of humanity. And because, uh, it doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but it means that because of sin, there has been a deadness that has happened to our, into our spirit that we, without the intervention of God, cannot receive the works of God. We need, just like Jesus, who took the initiative, this man or Jesus? The man didn't even know who he was till halfway through the chapter. Jesus took the initiative. If we're going to be healed of our spiritual blindness, we need the mercy of Christ <coughs> to take the initiative and heal us of our, our blindness. But notice fifth is the confession of the man. Wonderful, wonderful healing here. But more profound than physical. Verse 35. And this is after he's kind of been interrogated. 
In fact, he's been kicked out of the temple by the religious leaders. They got so frustrated at him. In verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. They excommunicated him. That's what he, wasn't it? They just kind of had the, the temple bouncers throw him out. They excommunicated him. When Jesus heard that, and it says, and when he, Jesus, found him. Even though he had experienced healing, the implication here is that the man had not yet been born again. There's a lot of people that God in their mercy has brought physical healing to as an act of mercy to draw them to himself, but instead of softening their heart, it actually hardened their heart. But we see Jesus taking the initiative, he found him. We say, I found God. Well, God was never lost. God found you. God found me. He found him. And he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, who is he? I mean, if you build a theology around having a deep, deep kind of confessional faith that leads to miracles, this guy is not your guy. He fails big time. He's been physically, dramatically healed by the mercy and hand of God, and he doesn't even know anything about God. Or at least Jesus, does he? Do you believe in the Son of God? He says, verse 36, who is he, Lord? And that isn't Lord like Master, Savior, Jesus is Lord. No, I mean, that's kind of like saying, sir, who is he, sir? That I may believe in him. Hey, I'm wide open. He's healed me. I, I want to I believe in him. You see, the Bible, again, stresses that it's not because you came up with the idea to come to faith in Christ and you went looking for him. It's because Ephesians 1.4 says, that God chose you before the foundation of the world. God took the initiative. He sought us, Ephesians 2. He sought us. He went after us when we were what? Dead in our sins. That while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died and gave his life for us. So to move from spiritual blindness to sight, belief in Jesus, trusting in Jesus for who he is, Jesus said, do you believe, verse 35, do you believe in the Son of God? You know, and a person who answers that answer to those, that question has eternity hanging in the balance. Your answer. Remember Jesus took his disciples one day and he asked them the question, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And then he bared down on them and said, who do you say that I am. It isn't that what my grandpa said or what my dad and mama said. It's who do you say that I am. And so the questions to a person who's going to move from darkness to light, and maybe you're here today, is the one question is, who is the Son of Man? The same question that he asked this man, who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man may not be familiar to you, but you realize that is the most frequent term that Jesus used in referring to himself that has a messianic connection to it. We talk about the Son of God, but Jesus used 
the term son of man more frequently in the gospel, something like at least 12 different times in the gospel of John alone, that he preferred the son of man. Son of man actually comes from the book of Ezekiel speaking about the one who is to come, and it connects Jesus' deity with his humanity. And Jesus, that's the reason he uses son of man. And that's an important question. Who is the son of man? Who do you say he is? Remember C.S. Lewis said that you only got three options when it comes down to it. He's either a liar, a liar. He's a lunatic. He's a nut. Or he's Lord. That's your options. Then not only who do I say he is, but what does it mean to believe in him? It isn't just checking off the facts of a creed or a doctrinal statement. It means that you have placed your trust in him. You see, the man demonstrated his trust in Christ in a real simple way. He did and followed what Jesus told him to do, to go wash in the pool of Siloam as a demonstration of his trust and faith in Jesus as part of this man's process of coming to salvation in Christ. To believe in Christ means that you abandon your attempts to self-manage your life, and it means that you're going to place trust in Him and follow what you were created by Him to do. It means that you are giving and trusting Him with your life. It means to admit that you are blind and you need light. You need the light of Jesus to come into your life. And all that may be good, but the question is this morning is, do I, do I believe in him? Do I really believe in him? Not just the facts that I believe like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, but do I believe as an act of trust in my life personally? Again, he could have let this guy go, but there was some unfinished business that Jesus had with him, and he found him because you know what would be the terrible tragedy is for this man to be a walking billboard of the miracle of Jesus of being healed since birth, to find sight, and the man go to hell because he rejects the Savior. Do I believe in him? And Jesus sought him out and said, Hey, do you? Do you believe? Do you trust personally? And he said in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And then he says he worshipped him. Another little insight that the religious folks didn't like is that Jesus received worship. If Jesus is anyone less than God, any less than deity, then Jesus is blaspheming by receiving worship. But see, Jesus could receive worship because because he was God, a very God. Speaks of his deity. But the last thing is that the story would be great if it ended there, but it ends with a very sobering reality. Number six, and that is the consequence of unbelief. The consequence of unbelief. I'm going to read it, these verses from the New Living Translation. They just, I think, make it a little clearer than the other versions. You see, the blind man illustrates a life that progressed towards saving faith. 
And I'm not saying we need to progress in the sense that we need to kind of work our way, but sometimes that's the way God works in many of our lives. Sometimes, you know, we ask people, when, when did you become a believer in Christ? And they're like, uh, I don't know. And that's okay. Some people can say, oh, it was October 5th, 1944, you know, or whatever it is. 332, you know, the weather was 33 degrees outside, and we were eating pork chops that night. I mean, you know, they can just rattle off the details. Some people are like, I don't know. I just feel like God's been, and that's okay. That's okay. And so the blind man, we see an illustration of, of someone that, that progressed in their, in their faith towards Christ. But sadly, these Pharisees representing, if the blind man who's healed represents the evidence of the light of Jesus, and then these religious folks illustrate a blindness and a hardness towards Jesus, they didn't progress towards faith. They actually digressed. They went deeper and further. Look at the last few verses of this chapter, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, chapter 9, verse 39. And then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show, look at this, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Jesus would say in another place, the doctor only comes, the physician only comes to bring healing towards those who are sick. The physician, it's a waste of time for the physician to go to somebody who's convinced that they're well. And some of the Pharisees were a little snarky. Verse 40, are you saying we're blind? I was like, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, they got that. They got that. Look at verse 41. He answers their sarcastic remark. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, and again, he's talking about spiritually, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. Because see, if you were blind, if you understood your need, you wouldn't have the guilt of rejecting the light. But you remain guilty. Notice he says you remain guilty. Because you claim, you can see. Some folks have a spiritual blindness and a hardness because they insist they do not need a Savior that their way is doing just fine. And they stay in a spiritual blindness, rejecting the gift of sight. And really, verse 41 is a gracious invitation. If you would just admit that you're blind... All your religious credentials and knowledge and everything and your status, you are blind and you don't even see it. Remember Jesus, wasn't at the church at Laodicea where he says you claim to be rich when in reality you're poor? Jesus says if you would just see and admit and the result of rejecting the spiritual light of Christ leads to a hardness of heart. I read the story in a book by Max Lucado called God Came Near. And he tells a story that for 51 years, a man by the name of Bob Edens was blind. He couldn't see a thing. His world was a black hall of sounds and smells. He felt his way 
through five decades of darkness, and then one day he could see. A skilled surgeon performed a complicated operation, and for the first time, Bob Edens had sight. He found it overwhelming. He said, quote, I never would have dreamed that yellow is so yellow. He says, I don't have the words. I am amazed by yellow. But red, ah, red. Now that's my favorite color. I just can't believe red. I can see the shape of the moon. And I like nothing better than seeing a jet plane flying across the sky, leaving that vapor trail. And of course, man, who could even admit the beauty of sunrises and sunsets? And at night, I look at the stars in the sky and the flashing light. And he says, you could never know how wonderful everything is. Some of you in spiritual blindness, maybe this morning, the appeal is you can't know how wonderful and beautiful the light of Christ can be into your life. And it starts with something as simple as saying, God, I need, this, I need your light to shine in the darkness of my heart. I need a vision of you. I need your light to come into my life. And I love, I love this guy. I'll conclude in this last verse, chapter 9, verse 25. There he's getting drilled and antagonized by all these religious folks trying to answer questions. And I love his simple answer. About as theologically deep as you'll ever get. He answered and said, 925, he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Look, you may not have every I dot and every T crossed and understand everything there is to understand about the Bible and God and why this, why another. But one thing that I pray that as believers you have the assurance and knowing I once was here and now I'm here. I once was blind, but now I see. And my sight on Jesus is getting better by faith every day. Let's pray.